So I don't, I haven't been here, for, I got here a little bit late yesterday, but has anyone made, you know, sometimes you get up here and people get upset about what you say and, you know, if, if anyone's going to shoot any arrows though, I feel like I'm covered. <laughs> like this is the first time I've ever felt so secure, you know, that like if, if something, Garmageddon comes, I'm down here, I can turn this into a canoe <laughs> and you guys are all goners. So whoever made this, thank you very much. Um, it's great to be here. It's great to always be with this group. I'm so, uh, so happy to, um, to be involved again. I love hearing from, I'll never think of shopping carts the same way. I don't know about you. That was unbelievable discovery, but, but also deeply troubling. Um, just a, a little tr troubling in the same way. There's a new, there's a review that was on Buzzfeed this past week of the new Google Pixel 3 phone. Does anyone have the new Google 3 Pixel phone? No? Well, um, this is what the review re, uh, by Matt Honan says. The world is on fire, but the new Google Pixel 3 in my pocket is cool to the touch. <laughs> a dark slab of metal and glass, it comes alive when I rub my finger across the back of it. And what does it say? We're doomed, a colleague texts me on Signal. A push alert from a news site has more details on the alleged murder and dismemberment of a Saudi journalist. On next door, several neighbors report that their drinking water has tested positive for unsafe levels of pesticides. Facebook is hacked and our information is out there. Everyone on Twitter is angry. Everyone on Instagram is posturing. You are less beautiful than they. The places you go are not as interesting. You should feel bad because you are worse in every way, but oh, that camera. That lens feature that can tell me what I'm looking at, what kind of plant, or what information is captured in a business card so that I do not have to enter it in or even remember it at all. I don't have to remember. Okay, Google, I don't want to think about it, okay? Okay. It's a very, very funny uh, sort of review of what it's like to be alive in 2018, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're up to. We feel sometimes, someone described their, their ecclesial context as a, a dumpster fire earlier, and I said that sort of feels, what's kind of what the world feels like, at least if you're on your phone. Um, and maybe not, because a lot of us read things like 1517, and hopefully you all read Mockingbird, I know you do, um, <laughs> and you're enlightened through your phone and whatnot, but he goes on in that interview to say, why is it that sort of I'm anxious when I'm not looking at my phone, and then I look at my phone and I get a little more anxious, and then I'm never not anxious. Something is going on, and uh, I've been asked today to speak about culture and the countercultural cross, and by speaking about... <laughs> Culture! Culture is amazing. Thank you, John. Now, I got the sense when I was asked to speak about culture and the countercultural cross, I wasn't asked, being asked to speak about sort of culture generally. You know, this is a culture. What's the culture of 1517? You can't escape. You have a culture of your family. You have a culture of the hotel, and that would apparently include no working elevators. You, you have a. You have a. Everyone's involved in a culture. There's a culture in your church. None of us are outside the culture. Let's just get that out of the way. But when I think I was asked to actually speak about the culture, what it feels like to live in our culture that we're all a part of by using our phones, by interacting with other people, that we're complicit in it. We're not outside of it. So let's just say that uh, from the get-go. But what is going on right now? 
I think that's why I was tasked with this subject. What is happening? Well, my theory is that our crisis today that we are dealing with and the, way, the reason life feels like such a dumpster fire or we're so anxious and lonely and depressed and sad um, <clears throat> and alienated and, um, and bitter is that not that we, that religion or belief is on the wane. I truly feel that we are more religious than ever and about too many things. Uh, now, what do I mean when I say that? You know, there's religion that we do on Sunday, and a lot of times when you hear people talk about religion in the culture, it bears no resemblance to how I see what's going on on Sunday, maybe how you see. But th there's that. There's the kneeling and the standing and the singing and the Lord's Supper and the preaching. But then religion more generally, I think we can uh, sort of the way I'd, I've, I've come to understand it with a sort of a, a small r is that um, it's the justifying story of your life. It is your guilt management system. And everyone has one. Just as like Ferde would say that everyone's a theologian of some type. We're all theologians of glory. Um, but you can't sort of opt out. Even if you have no theology, you have, that's your theology. We're all religious, and I think that we, that, the, that we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings or going to more soccer games, as the case may be, but we've never been more pious. Uh, religious observance has not faded apace uh, secularization, as sometimes you hear it talked about. It's just migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. I, have a, I feel like, in this sense, in the, the lowercase r sense, we're almost never not in church. And so what do I, that's what I'm going to talk about a little today and how it relates to this uh, countercultural cross. <clears throat> so again, uh, religion is your preferred guilt management system. It doesn't matter how you check the box on your um, on the census or the Pew survey or the you know, Gallup or something like that. It's whatever you're leaning on to tell you that you're okay, that your life matters. It's another name for all the ladders. We spend our lives climbing towards some dream of wholeness. It is not just the controlling story of your life. It's the justifying story of your life. So in that sense, our religion is that which we rely on, not simply for meaning or for hope, but for enoughness. This word enoughness, you know, um, listen carefully and you'll hear it absolutely everywhere in the culture and out of your own mouth, you know, especially when it comes to anxiety, loneliness, depression, exhaustion, division. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And we believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value and vindication and ultimately love would be ours. In other words, if we got enough, we would be enough. This is the wisdom of the world that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. And it's nothing new. And you can be a Christian and subscribe to it with every fiber of your being. In fact, most of us do. But we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel like we're enough. We want to feel the religious word here, the capital R religious word is righteousness. And you know, someone once said that, you know, uh, Luther had amazing uh, answers if you have a 16th century questions. It's a kind of a put down, but um, I can see kind of what they're saying. You know, maybe some of us aren't totally hung up with our standing before 
uh, God, and you look at some, talk to some people in downtown San Diego, they'd be like, what are you talking about? But if you ask them, do they feel like they're enough? Are they occupied at their core with some struggle for righteousness? Uh, if they were being honest with you, they would say yes, every single person. And the more I read, actually, the Heidelberg Disputation, I reread it again last week in preparation for this talk, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is contemporary. Or contemporary is the wrong word. This is simply timeless. He tapped into something of our DNA. So how about you and me? Well, we want to feel good about ourselves, so we edit our personalities to maximize the approval of others. We do this in person. Uh, maybe we exaggerate hardships to make ourselves seem more heroic or others seem more villainous. The theological term for the energy we expend for the sake of feeling righteous, of course, is self-justification, and I don't think it can be overstated as a motivation in human affairs. Right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, but your colleague, for example, who can't stop working, you know, maybe uh, they, perhaps she equates busyness with worthiness. Your perpetually single friend who can't seem to ever find someone who meets up to his standard, well, it could be that he's looking to another person to complete him, to make him feel like he's enough. And what about you? Maybe the reason you can't stop scrolling through your social media feed is because it confirms how righteous your opinions about others and yourself are, whether that, that might be a negative opinion of yourself. Or maybe on some level that you can barely admit to yourself, you believe that if your latest post on Facebook gets enough likes, you will finally like yourself. In the, what will henceforth be known as the Keith translation of the Heidelberg Disputation, if you haven't, if you haven't read this thing, by the way, let's give Caleb Keith a big round of applause, and Kelsey Fumbara, who, who put this thing together. This is incredible. This is such an amazing resource. I'm going to read to you um, thesis two and three of their translation, which isn't that different, but it's, it's a little better, I think. <clears throat> Uh, he's talking, he first talks about the law of God, which cannot lead, it doesn't lead a person to righteousness. He says, much less could the work of men, that is to say, even works which are done over and over again with the help of natural law, move someone towards righteousness. Thesis three, even though the works of man always seem to be beautiful and good, they are nevertheless demonstrably deadly, deadly sins. Now that's a, that's a, that's a heavy thing to say, Martin. But I think he's, he's, there, there's real um, gravity and traction for you and I in 2018. So what is going on here? Well, if you'll bear with me, I think there's a deep irony at work. And that our enoughness is our universal human longing. This is confirmed by all the social scientists, the psychologists. But we, of course, don't need confirmation. It's already there in the Bible. And the yearning for it binds us together across party, country, gender, race, age, it provides the glue that holds most of our most altruistic movements together. And yet, the specific expression of this obsession with enoughness in each person's life is what often alienates them from each other and ultimately from God. Because here's the wrinkle, one that's so well-worn that it hardly bears mentioning. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never arrive at enough. Our lives attest to the fact that the threshold does not exist, at least not where fallible and finite human beings are concerned. 
Instead, as one journalist writes it in regards to the perfectionism of our social media era, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I'll read that again. People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I mean, if that doesn't describe our moment, and if that doesn't describe every moment, but our moment in particular, I mean, so, if, and so, so actually, why is it that we seem more fixated on righteousness now than any time in memory that I can think of? Well, at the risk of gross oversimplification, and this is my theory, for centuries, I think we relied on capital R religion to tell us that we're okay. Clergy would reveal the shape of true righteousness and how we might come to be associated with it. They would give the word, they would give the sacraments, and people would leave, God willing, and, you know, this isn't every church, but you'd leave with some sense that you'd been absolved. That's what most of the liturgies that we've inherited actually do. Church provided us a place, in other words, to go with our guilt and with our shame. But for more and more people in the modern world, that no longer feels like an advisable or available option. And so with altars off the table, pun intended, uh, that, was, that was a church joke. <laughs> fresh targets of our yearning for righteousness enoughness, fresh targets have cropped up all over the place, from the kitchen and food culture to the gym and, you know, physical prowess and fitness to the computer screen and staying on top of actually everything, to the bedroom, to being the most sought after and uh, you know, satisfying uh, you know, person in that regard. But this is why I'm proposing a fresh term, and uh, Derek alluded to it in uh, the introduction, which is nice, thank you. The term is seculosity, and it's a catch-all for religiosity, religious feeling, which is simply this yearning for a justifying story to be sort of given to us. It's, it's, seculosity is a catch-all for religiosity that's directed horizontally rather than vertically, at earthly rather than heavenly objects. So the, the subtitle, it's long, I'm sorry, but I had to, if, you use, if you're trying to combine secular and religiosity and people are like, what, what is secular, what is religiosity? And you're trying to do that, you, apparently in the publishing world you have to explain what that means. And um, the subtitle is... Uh, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. So, so buy it all. It'll be available in April. And uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting, but it's also quite tragic. And it applies to this person right here. If you'll note all of those categories, they, they basically hit uh, a man uh, living on the east coast of America in his 30s in uh, 2018 perfectly. Um, that's not a, that's not a uh, coincidence. So uh, righteousness is running amok out there. And it is a doing, a, it's, it's, create, it's fostering mercilessness everywhere you look. We talk about we live in a very merciless culture, not just politically, in every way. We live in a very merciless culture. My friend was... Um, talking to his students who he, he has in New York, and they're sort of secular students at a school, and he was talking to them about um, uh, Johnny Cash and that song of his, Hurt, about the mercy that a person receives at the end of their life and that, that Jesus taking on the mercy of the world, uh, being merciful, taking on the sin of the world, and the students hated it. They say, how would you, you know, this man who's a 
white, rich, successful person who's done so well, you're just going to let him off the hook? You know, crucify that guy. Um, now, that's not to create some sort of self-pity. That's simply how the human spirit does not like mercy when it comes to people that we don't want mercy that are not like us. But where once we chose between a different array of schools to attend, for example, now there's the one that will ensure our future success and that of our children, and then there's the many that will squander it. Where once there was a sea of possible people to date, now there's Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and everyone else is a waste of your time. What's more, it often seems that the further we retreat from capital R, religion, the more contenders emerge to harness our floundering religiosity. This is what Charles Taylor, the, the Canadian philosopher, calls the Nova effect. And he calls it, it's like an explosion of religious pluralism. But if you don't, don't want to go to Canadian philosophy, just think of the video game Centipede. You know that video game? It's this like centipede that's going around and you're supposed to try to destroy it. If you cut off the head of the centipede, it doesn't kill the beast. Instead, it divides it into a bunch of like extra dangerous little children. And I, the more fearsome when you slash, the more nefarious the multiplication. So what am I saying is that we've just created a gazillion different religions. And it's, not, it's a little differently than idolatry. I'm not really talking about that because idolatry involves us worshiping something as though it's God. I'm, I'm, trying to t I'm talking about people trying to secure their righteousness through adherence to standards of behavior and belief that are, are creating the exact opposite of righteousness. Um, so... Uh, these new religions go by different names, but they function all basically the exact same. They cast a vision of enoughness and then implore us to realize that vision with our personal forbearance, grit, and, of course, our you know, hard currency uh, for the sake of existential reward. But we will then be enough. If you eat well enough, love well enough, parent well enough, stay busy enough, you will be enough. So in other words, they maintain all of the demand and much of the ritual if you've been to SoulCycle recently. Or watched, you know, Chef's Table on Netflix. They maintain all of the demand, but none of the mercy of capital R variety. And it's exhausting, to put it mildly. And again, membership in a church does not exempt you from this. You're probably just, you know, worshiping right along with everyone else. Now, this is just, uh, the objects of our seculosity. Food, romance, education, children, technology. They're not somehow bad. Quite the opposite. They're by and large pretty great. It's only when we lean on these things for enoughness, for righteousness, when we co-opt them for our self-justification or make them into arbiters of salvation itself that they turn toxic. They can't bear that weight. They have all become what we would refer to in this room as religions of law or as the, the, the Heidelberg Disputation talks about, as religions of human works as opposed to that revealed by the law, capital L law of God. These are religions of human works in which divine favor or enoughness, simply put, is bestowed on those who conform to its conception of righteousness, those who act in accordance with the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots that God has laid out. But a small r religion of seculosity promises functional salvation to those who live up to its demand, expressed more often than not in the shoulds and the oughts that we infer from our shared ideals. Thou ought to be skinny or influential, or my favorite today is effortlessly sophisticated. You know, you know, my shirt's a little rumpled. You know, I kind of like maybe I ran out of bed, like rolled out of bed and just sort of walked up here. Do I, am I, does it feel effortless? Because it's not. 
could lose a few pounds. Um, there's a great McSweeney's did an article recently, woman hospitalized after attempting effortless lifestyle. <laughs> a 36-year-old woman was admitted to the emergency room this afternoon after several attempts at an effortless lifestyle. Patient reports attempting effortless lifestyle after a friend of a friend claims she was heading to Tuscany for two weeks with, quote, four simple essentials, one of which included a sundress that converted to a tablecloth for last-minute picnics <laughs> near San Gimignano. That's the world we're living in. But it's this precise understanding of religion that's parodied so well in the sitcom The Good Place. Anyone watch The Good Place out there? In which it's revealed that people accrue points during their time on earth according to their deeds. Uh, let's roll this first clip, which is the sort of the orientation video to The Good Place. And Kristen Bell, the voice of Anna in Frozen and Veronica Mars, she is the one who uh, is sitting there that you'll focus on. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, Every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares? No one's watching. We were watching. Surprise. <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right. Soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. So it's a beautiful picture of the world of basically a theology of glory, which says it's up to you. Uh, your story is your glory story to get the most points, to be justified according to works of the law, and to, to, to not be not actually be distracted or, or only be distracted in the right ways so that your score goes up. Did you see some of those? You know, remaining loyal to the Cleveland Browns <laughs> nets you 53 0.83 points, while overstating a personal connection to a tragedy that has nothing to do with you, will ding you 40 and a half points. Um, it's telling that the performancism here is both universally and immediately recognizable to audiences, 
no matter what they say they believe. And its pitfalls are so endlessly entertaining. Now, what happens here is Kristen Bell, the blonde who's played by, uh, her name is Eleanor Shellstrop. She realizes she's there by mistake. She shouldn't be there. She was an awful person in life, totally self-absorbed and just in the funniest possible way, but a complete stinker of a human being, a real sinner. And she's like, what am I doing here? They find out that she shouldn't be there. But when the real Eleanor Shellstrop shows up, and so they have to, but, but she, by this point, she's become friends with people in the good place, and they have to figure out a way for her to stay. And so the following thing, this is the meeting where they have that little powwow. Why don't we roll this one, too? Now, I'm about to show you some very sensitive information. The final point totals each of you achieved for all your actions on Earth. Whoa, your point total was crazy high, Eleanor. <laughs> oh, sorry. Crazy High Eleanor was my nickname in college. I accidentally saw these point totals when Michael was fixing the sinkhole. It gave me an idea. We will apply the formula to Eleanor's actions here in the good place, and if you earn enough new points, then we could argue that you should stay here. Would that work? Don't know. Never had to prove someone belonged here before. But the judge will be here soon, and this is the best way to build our case. Now, the average point total for a resident here is roughly 1.2 million. Right now, based on everything that you did on Earth, you have negative 4,008. That's not great, but I'm gonna do nice things for every goober in this place until my point total is so high, I can rub it in all their smug faces. You just lost five points. Hello. Hi, how are you? There has to be something bigger I can do than holding the door and waving. There's no way every Walmart greeter is in the good place. Walmart? It's a place regular people go. You haven't heard of it. Look, I know this is tedious, but holding a door for someone is three points, and if you do it for everyone in the neighborhood, then that's almost a thousand points, which is a start. Besides, all the big ticket items are impossible, I'm afraid. It's not as if you could, you know, sacrifice your life to save others or change the consciousness of a nation. Both of which I did, by the way. Such fun. Have a wonderful day. This is pointless. The ticker isn't even going up. And everyone's giving me the stink eye. Great job tonight. Have you checked the, uh, the ticker? I could really use some good news. Okay. Oh, come on. Well, the nightmare continues. The nightmare continues. How did this not work? There is no way to increase my point total because everything I'm doing is out of self-preservation. I don't understand. My motivation is corrupt. Even when I do nice things, I'm only doing them so I can get something out of it, the ability to stay here, which means none of this had any real moral value. It doesn't count. Holy shirt. You can't say curse words, so every time it's the good place, so every time she tries it says shart or something like that. Um, but what we're seeing here is how um, your attempts to you know, engineer your own righteousness goes, goes back goes, because, because the, the, you know, your motivation's corrupt. It's unbelievably astute, but I mean, it's not quite as good as supermarket carts, but it could be. You th I, when I first heard uh, Elise give that, I thought, is, she, is that something from the good place? A good, good place? Anyway, religions of law um, and uh, of human works may succeed in the short term because they do appeal to our sense of control. 
but they run out of steam eventually when confronted with the realities of the human heart and the human conflictedness. This is why I think theologies of the cross do not worry so much about our bad works as they do about the, the, the self-righteousness that comes from our good works. That's the deeper poison in the spiritual life. Because anyone who's tried to hang their self-regard on a target of seculosity finds out enough, again, even if you're sinfully trying to get to her, it simply doesn't exist. It's always retreating into the distance. Maybe you know Marcus Person, the mind behind the viral video game craze Minecraft. Shortly after selling his company for billions of dollars and getting what he calls, quote-unquote, everything, he tweeted to the world at 3 a.m. that he was, quote, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Now, that's Marcus Person, and that doesn't hold a candle to the stuff that's been coming out of Elon Musk's mouth this past year. I mean, have you been following that guy? He's a walking illustration of the law. It's, I mean, I, I wish I had a billion dollars, too, I guess, and could go to Mars, but it, it, he said, I, I can't sleep at night because there's no one in my bed because I'm so lonely. And then he asks the interviewer in the interview if he knows any per person that Elon can date. I mean, don't you feel for that guy? I feel for him. That kind of you know, righteousness, the, uh, at least the enoughness according to the world, has isolated him so completely. It's so led him in the opposite direction of true uh, love and peace. And this is true. You know, Lady Gaga said the same thing, by the way. Religions of human works promise wholeness and peace, but they ultimately deliver anxiety, self-consciousness, and loneliness. And, so, and therefore, a culture awash in seculosity is a culture of despair because it's all glory, no cross, no even possibility of the cross. I'll give you one big example. And that's the seculosity of romance, which I think is often where the rubber meets the road. Back in 1973, in his just as upbeat as you'd imagine book, The Denial of Death, um, uh, uh, Becker uh, prophesied that the wedding industries, he prophesied all about the wedding industry's explosive, Ernst Becker, uh, the wedding industry's explosive growth when he introduced the idea of apocalyptic romance. And what that meant is that to fill the void left by capital R religion, uh, we would turn first and foremost to romance. He wrote, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. This is precisely what happened with Molly and Peter. It's a true story. Six years after a painful divorce, Molly meets Peter. She was, by her own admission, cynical about love, and especially the marital kind. Peter's wife, on the other hand, had died, and he fell hard for Molly, countering her doubts with relentless optimism and promising all manner of bliss and security that he could bring her. Their relationship would be different from the ones she had known, he told her. Their families would integrate. They would have more than enough money. He would make everything all right. Eventually, Peter won Molly over or wore her down, and they got married. You can probably guess what happened next. All did not transpire as Peter had predicted. His son refused to talk to Molly. They accrued all sorts of debt. Molly confesses in this article that she was writing about this, that in the past, when disappointment like this had reared its head, she would do one of three things. One, she would bail on the relationship. Or two, she would stick with it but blame the man forever. Or three, she would stick with it and blame herself. Those were her three options. So she recalls the night that things came to a head. They're unpacking their bags after a visit with his family, and she is lamenting his kids' continued resistance to her presence in their life. 
All of a sudden, Peter drops the clothes he's holding and under his breath mutters, I can't take it anymore. It's too much for me. I know I said I wanted us to talk about everything, that I wanted to know everything you felt, but I can't handle it. I'm sorry. In the thick silence that followed, Molly finished putting away the laundry. Peter went downstairs. And then she got in the shower, turned on the water, and sat on the tiled floor in grief and disbelief. Now, you might think that was the end of Peter and Molly, but it wasn't. She writes, I still wonder why the disappointments didn't doom our relationship, but now, eight years later, I think our real relationship began with them. In the aftermath, something new happened. He had let me down, and he cared about my reaction. I didn't have to pretend that the falling bricks didn't hurt. That's why he's a good person for me. I can dream a little myself, and if the dreams don't come true, I'm not left alone to pick up the pieces. So painful as it was, the death of their expectations, of their seculosity of romance, birthed something beautiful, something akin to real love. Instead of, I love you as long as you don't disappoint me, their relationship took on a new operating philosophy. I love you in the midst of our mutual disappointments. And you know, to a lesser extent, their story is my story. I don't know about you. My wife and I like to say that our marriage didn't actually begin until three years after we said our vows. After our big day, after our illusions about one another and ourselves had been sufficiently deflated, God had basically put them to death, and we stopped taking ourselves quite so seriously. What we learned, and what we still forget with astonishing frequency, is what Molly and Peter learned, that real love, real love, abiding love does not recoil at weakness. That is where it begins. Love without vulnerability is not love at all. It's more like mutual objectification, where the other person serves as a canvas upon which we project not only our idealized selves, but our spiritual and emotional yearnings. You see, real love is more than something we fall into. It's something we fail into. And what sounds like a foolishly tragic view of life, foolish, is actually a starting point for compassion, forgiveness, and joy. After all, we stand a much better chance of loving our neighbor or spouse when we aren't looking to them to do or to be something they cannot do or be. Uh, Gerhard Furde puts it like this in, um, in On Being a Theologian of the Cross. He says, for the alcoholic, the humility to confess I am an alcoholic is not a mark of despair but of hope. It is false optimism that brings ultimate despair. Right. Anne Lamott puts it this way. She says, with everyone we've ever known or loved who's gotten sober or off whatever their addiction was, it begins with running out of good ideas. It begins with this pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization with your best efforts. And then you say the first great prayer, which is help. So I thought I'd show you what a a, a, a sort of a theology of the cross-inspired marriage service might look like. We're going to look at the School of Life put this together, Alain de Botton. We're only going to watch a part of it, but this is what his vision of what a love that recognizes the vulnerability, the weakness, the sort of foolishness of this uh, conception of love, what it would actually look like on the big day itself. Let's watch this. Things kick off with what's called the ritual of humility. Humility is probably the most important emotion for the success of a relationship. Humility starts with an ample, accurate and sorrowful recognition of all one's failings. It is filled with apology and modesty. It doesn't pretend that flaws are charming quirks or excusable oddities. 
It contains an open admission that we wish we were different and better. Simon, do you admit that you're a failed, broken human being? Not in every way, but in some ways so serious that you will at points be a grave burden to Emily. Yes, I admit I am failed and broken. Before coming here today, freely and openly and after careful reflection, you have listed your failings as you recognize them. You've listed them in this book. This is your book of imperfections. Would you now, before me, your partner and your guests, read some of what you have stated in your own words? I acknowledge that I'm not good at communicating my feelings maturely. I won't say what's bothering me, but instead sulk and expect you to read my mind and get furious at you when you can't. I can be quite self-involved. I tend to assume that if you're upset, it's something about me. I get jealous even over small incidents and become petty and hateful instead of showing that I'm afraid of losing you. Both partners admit to their multiple faults. Self-righteousness is, after all, the great enemy of love. Neither of us is fully sane or healthy. We are committed to treating each other as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination when we can manage it. There is nothing odd about this couple beyond the ordinary oddness that is everyone's lot. They've merely put into words the errors and failings of which we are all continuously guilty. We are all broken. We have all been idiots and will be idiots again. We are all difficult to live with. We sulk and get angry. Blame others for our own I'll say it again, and I think that they've said it in the marriage ceremony here, and I, it's directly out of the disputation. Self-righteousness is more poisonous to the spiritual life than self-indulgence. And this is the great, you know, um, Alan Jacob says that the great sin of our age is wrath. And I think that wrath is only, a, you're only capable of wrath when you're convinced that you're right. And um, maybe there are matters in which things are, you know, there are clear convictions to be had. But there's, that's different, there's a difference between that and self-righteousness. Uh, Ferdinand puts it this way, a deadly sin is one that actually separates and seals us off from God. That occurs when the apparent goodness of our works seduces us into putting our trust in them. That is, it occurs when the very goodness of the work is such that it dissuades us from confessing. A human work, no matter how good, is a deadly sin because it in actual fact entices us away from naked trust in the mercy of God to trust in self. And I watch this thing, which has had no trust in self, and yet I find myself so hopeful. And as a married person, I want my wife to watch it with me so we can laugh and that we can realize how we are those people and that God has kept us together through his grace and mercy. So I thought I'll close by saying that culture with a capital C does not apply to all works of culture. Some of them have a way of conveying the gospel with startling acuity. Better than the church, by the way, oftentimes, because the church in our day and age, and maybe always, has become another venue for establishing our enoughness apart from God. We just use spiritual language to do so. 
But the, cult remain, the cross remains countercultural in the deepest possible sense. And I see this greatly in this short story from 1958 by Langston Hughes called Thank You, Ma'am. Maybe you're familiar with it. It is, um, it, there are only two characters in the story, a boy named Roger and a, quote, large woman with a large purse named Luella Bates Washington Jones. They're in Harlem. And Luella is walking home late at night when Roger runs up and tries to steal her purse. Before he can get away, Luella grabs the boy and won't let him go. He's in for it, is what we think, because she's the kind of lady that people in 1958 would call a battle axe. <laughs> Luella asks Roger why he tried to snatch her bag, and after telling a couple of lies, which she calls him on, he finally comes clean. He wanted money to buy a pair of blue suede shoes. This is 1958, okay? The songs, both Perkins and Elvis had done the songs. Hughes wants to unburden us of our sympathy for this boy. Roger wasn't acting out of hunger. He wasn't Jean Valjean. He wasn't acting out of desperation at, because he was poor and fatherless or something like that. He was acting out of greed. He was no victim, at least no more than anyone else. Anyway, Roger assumes that she's getting ready to haul him into jail, into juvie. But instead, Luella does something strange. She brings him home with her. She washes his face and tells him that she knows what it's like to want things that you can't get. And then, in lieu of further lecture, she cooks him a meal, complete with dessert. Her unexpected behavior has a strange effect on Roger. When they enter her apartment, you see, Luella had laid her purse on the day bed where he could easily grab it and bolt. But curiously enough, he finds he no longer wants to. Instead, he hears himself ask Luella if she needs someone to go to the store to fetch her milk. She demures, instead fills his plate again. And I'll read to you from the story itself. The woman did not ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, as they ate, she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late, what the work was like, and how all kinds of women came in and out, blondes, redheads, and Spanish. Then she cut him half of her 10-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. When they were finished eating, she got up and said, now here. Take this $10 and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the street as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something else other than, thank you, ma'am, to Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones. But although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that as he turned at the foot of the barren stoop and looked up at the large woman in the door because she had already shut the door. You see, what Roger receives from Luella is the opposite of what he deserved. He broke the law in no uncertain terms, yet Luella responds with warmth, welcome, and even reward. Her reaction lies so far outside the logic of this for that as to be absurd. Isn't she afraid of being taken advantage of, we wonder? What about consequences? Aren't her actions irresponsible? Surely this can't be Hughes' idea of what it means to be a good parent. No, Luella doesn't ignore Roger's transgression or shrug it off. Nor does she punish him as she would have every right to. 
Because she sees herself in the boy, the intervention she offers goes beyond mere restraint and reaches into the depth of motivation, what Shellstrop was talking about. The counterintuitive treatment he experiences inspires a change of heart in the boy. Sitting there in the, her apartment, he no longer wants to do wrong. The Heidelberg Disputation ends with the thesis 28 that says, the love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to it. You see, Luella bears the cost of Roger's misdeed, financial as well as relational, and it makes all the difference. In a few short pages, Langston Hughes paints an indelible picture of something other than retribution. He captures in narrative form the only force with the power to inspire what the laws of control and enoughness command, the kind of love that succeeds, or at least can succeed, where judgment fails, what we call the deeper magic of grace. This is what is revealed and enacted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The cross, this countercultural cross, declares that the guilt and shame we spend our days trying in vain to expiate via all sorts of sweat and scapegoating and seculosity is absolved, past, present, future. But take note, my friends. Good behavior does not bring Roger into contact with Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones. And it won't bring us into contact with God either. Only bad behavior does the trick. Poor performance, not flying colors, which is good news for those among us whose scores on the test of life keep getting worse. And for those of us who keep getting ensnared in the false promise of seculosity, even though we know better. Glimpsed through the lens of a cross, what looks like the end for Roger may be only the beginning. It may be the birth pangs of mercy, the same mercy which extends to lonely pastors and their exhausted congregants, to addicts and their enablers, to hopeless romantics and uh, <coughs> you and me. Amen. <laughs>